Let's turn in our Bibles this afternoon to Ephesians chapter 6. With God's help, looking at verses 5 through 9 this afternoon. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, also printed in your uh, order of service there. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Well, I wonder if any of you have ever personally known a slave. I imagine that if you did personally know a slave, as highly doubtful as that is these days, I would imagine it's even less likely that you know a slave owner, or that you've ever been a slave, or that you've ever been a slave owner. It's not that slavery doesn't exist anymore. Let's not kid ourselves. Slavery does exist. It's just that most of us don't see it nowadays or hear of it nowadays. But in the Apostle Paul's day, it would have been almost impossible to not encounter a slave on a regular basis or know someone who owns slaves or for yourself to own slaves. In Paul's day, it's estimated that anywhere between 20 to 50, 20 to 50 percent of the population in any given Roman city was made up of slaves. Somewhere around 60 million slaves. Now it's hard to get an accurate estimate, but that's the consensus. You could imagine Paul and other apostles then, as they encountered slavery, lived among that institution. And actually how surprising it is then, if you stop and think about it, that the apostle Paul and other apostles although not uh, a slave in themselves, yet they express their complete submission to and identification with Jesus Christ by claiming that identity of slave. The Apostle Paul, Peter, James, Jude, all declare themselves to be slaves or bondservants, as it's often translated, of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul delights to call himself a slave several times. In Galatians 1, verse 10, for example, he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I wonder if you ever thought, why did the apostles do this? Take this identity on themselves? Because they are declaring their absolute devotion to Jesus Christ, their subjugation or submission to his will, and their identification with Jesus Christ himself. And so if you're to call yourself a Christian, someone who is bound to Jesus Christ, you too must declare your submission to him and bound yourself up to the joy of his service. I think that's somewhat of what Paul is getting at here in this passage of Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9, as we continue and get closer to the end of our study of this letter. So again, please look with me, if you would, as we read our passage for today, as Paul takes up this theme of serving others as if we were serving Christ himself. Hear now the word of the Lord. Bond servants. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, 
not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Praise God for his holy word. Well, friends, I think the main idea is very simple. I think you can see it right here in the text of what Paul is getting at. And therefore, the main idea of this sermon is, Christian, because you are bound to Christ, serve others as if you were serving Christ. Because you are bound to Christ, serve others as if you were serving Christ. You can see it several times in the text that we just read, how Paul calls on Christians not to serve others uh, because of serving themselves or serving to people, please, but as bond servants of Christ. So Christian, because you are bound to Christ, serve others as you would as you were serving Christ. Apostle Paul is a man bound to Christ, speaking to fellow Christians who are bound to Christ and some of them bound to earthly masters. I wonder if you're struck then, like I am, that Paul actually addresses slaves here. Or bond servants, as we have it here in the ESV. It's the word doulos in Greek. We can translate it either way, but we often translate it as bond servants. So for many of us, especially in a Western context, we distinguish it from slavery as we would think of it formerly in the United States. But I wonder if you look at this, Paul addressing bond servants, I wonder if you just, the idea of a bond servant is so foreign to you that you just sort of glaze over this text or read over it rather quickly and think, well, this has nothing to do with me today because we don't have this system. I don't know what a bond servant is, maybe. And so, friends, the first thing I want us to see here, very important that bond servants are welcomed, valued members of the church. We need to see and talk about slavery in the New Testament if we're going to really understand what Paul's getting at here. You know, it wasn't that long ago in places like the United States when verses like these were used, they're actually abused and distorted to promote enslavement of Africans in America. Even Christians in America for years try to justify the enslavement, dehumanizing of, trafficking of other human beings using scripture passages like this. So let's be very clear this afternoon. Paul's not saying here, and nowhere in scripture is it commended to have chattel slavery. Uh, There's no justification for that in all of scripture. No text here or elsewhere in the Bible gives an excuse, gives an out for that sinful, wicked institution. But the type of slavery in Paul's day was not the same as the enslavement of Africans in America. In Paul's day, uh, many people voluntarily submitted to slavery because their alternative was starvation and death. Uh, Many people became slaves because they were given up by their parents. 
They were abandoned as infants left to die by exposure, and so they're picked up by slave traders. But especially notable, in Paul's day, slaves were not slaves simply by race. Slaves in ancient Rome were of various races and colors. And so, as I said, in any given Roman city around that time, 20 to maybe 50% of the population consisted of slaves. And so you need to understand that the typical household you know, had a father, mother, children, and slaves, bond servants. That's typical. And the work of the slaves could be various things. It's not just menial labor. In fact, slaves could be doctors, they could be teachers, they could be accountants. Uh, some slaves bought their money or bought their freedom uh, from money, but it was very rare. So make no mistake, slaves at that time, not a glamorous class. In Paul's day, they're at the mercy and whims of their masters. Lots of abuse, cruel punishment, flogging, whipping, branding, maiming. Slaves are really possessions. The Roman word for urinate and ejaculate were the same. And masters in that day often used their slaves as urinals. That's how low-class slaves were seen, as just mere possessions that masters could, could treat any way they wanted. The Roman Empire is not like our world today. And so we need to see that it's very significant here that Paul even addresses slaves when he speaks to the church. With such an underprivileged, shamed, and mistreated class of people, what does Paul do? Paul treats them as people made in the image of God. He's treating them as equals in the church. The very inclusion of slaves shows that the Bible and the gospel elevates the status of slaves in the Christian community. In God's eyes, there are no second-class citizens when it comes to the household of faith. What is scorned and devalued by the world, Jesus and the gospel transforms into valued, welcome members of God's household. So just let the reality of that sink in for a moment when you hear Paul's words in Galatians 3, for example, when he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel levels those distinctions. The church, everyone who comes in the same way, is a unified, classless household of faith. And so, there's no other institution on earth like this, that has a mission like this, that has a charter like this, or an identity like this. So, friends, we need to see then, I hope you understand, as Christ's covenant church... We do not draw boundaries and artificial barriers around who is welcomed in this church. Where Christ doesn't draw boundaries, we don't draw boundaries. Because we are bound to Christ. If he is for all people, then we are for all people. We don't stop someone at the door because they're of a certain occupation, because they are a certain age, because they hold or don't hold a certain passport. That's the liberating effect of the gospel, isn't it? I hope you see that in this text. Paul's speaking to slaves. 
seen as classless people, elevating them to equal status within the church. So I hope you see that. There's a liberating effect to the gospel here that comes out, a spiritual emancipation, as it were. And yet, the reality was that the gospel did not literally break the chains off these slaves, did it? Just being a Christian did not mean that believers were immediately free from all unjust social institutions and human authorities. Just being a Christian did not relieve them of incredible suffering. And even though Paul and the early Christians tolerated slavery, they still lived under this despotic institution. And so how should Christians, slaves and masters, some of whom are probably in this very church together, they're they're equal in Christ, how should they relate to each other and to others? Paul says, Christians must serve others as if they're serving Christ himself. What does that look like? That's what Paul goes into here. And first he addresses slaves, as I pointed out. So Christian, first of all, see that you need to obey authority with the right mindset and motivation. We see that in verses 5 through 8 here, as Paul addresses slaves directly. You obey authority with the right mindset and motivation. Your mindset matters, Paul is saying in verses 5 through 7 here. Your mindset starts with a sincerity of heart, he says in verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. You know, in Paul's day, it would not be unnatural for a slave to have an insincere heart uh, in their work, in their service. I mean, they would want to or be desired, they would sometimes want to deceive their masters out of fear or even hate because masters had such power over their lives, right? A tyrannical master could mean a lifetime of pain and suffering for a servant, of shame. Masters controlled and manipulated their slaves through fear. So you could understand, being a slave yourself, that sometimes you would deceive your master so that you could get out of jobs you hated or avoid punishment. But that's not the mindset for Christian bond servants that Paul has in mind. Paul calls Christian slaves bond servants. He calls them to a higher, more challenging way of life. And he doesn't tell them to just run away from their masters. Instead, he calls them to live with a sincere heart and serve with a sincere heart. Our family, as many of you know, we live next to Sujo Creek. Probably walked along Sujo Creek before. You can look inside there. You look inside maybe your canal where you live. I don't know. Uh, it's not very clean water, is it? Uh, you can't see to the bottom of that river. It's very muddy. It's kind of gross, smelly, trashy stuff in there. It's kind of the picture of an insincere heart. You can't see through it. It clouds over what's really there, the intentions. It muddies. It's hide, it hides. It deceives. It's hypocritical. But a Christian's heart is sincere. You can see right through it to the bottom. You can see through with the person's words and actions. A Christian heart is honest. It's honest with yourself. It's honest towards God. It's honest towards other people. If you're a Christian, you delight in the truth. You don't hide it. You're genuine. You're dependable. If you serve Jesus, you ought to be able to look like you... You have to be able to look like Nathaniel, Jesus, 
And he sees Nathaniel. You remember what he says to him. He says, look an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. The key to this sincerity, though, as Paul's saying here, is to keep your eye on Christ. Paul says, obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. It's possible to serve with this sincerity, even under harsh circumstances then, because Christians serve as if they were serving Christ himself. And so a Christian wouldn't lie to Jesus. A Christian wouldn't deceive Jesus. A Christian wouldn't disobey Jesus. And so we should serve others in the same way. And as you do that, remember how Jesus himself served with this mindset of sincerity. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Peter 2 about Jesus' suffering service. And Peter is speaking to slaves here. He says, for to you, uh, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And friends, if you're bound to Christ as his servant, you need to serve others as if you were serving Christ with sincerity. And so as a Christian in the workplace, you're not going to risk smearing the name of Christ in order to save your own skin. You're not going to weaken your morals and risk muddying the waters of your witness to Christ and the gospel. As a bondservant of Christ, you're not going to risk shipwrecking your own conscience in order to pluck yourself from danger. You're bound to Christ, so serve him with the mindset of sincerity as if you're serving Christ himself. But then secondly, this, this mindset that we're supposed to have as Christians, as Paul's particularly looking at Christian slaves here, in verses 6 and 7 he says, your passion to please also matters. Not only a mindset of sincerity, but a mindset of who you're aiming to please. Your passion to please is critical, demonstrating who it is you truly serve and your ultimate concern in life. Paul says there in verses 6 and 7, Obey your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. The key to serving like this, again, as Paul says here, is is keeping your eyes fixed on Christ, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. It's possible then to do your homework as if Christ himself was going to be looking it over. It's possible to prepare meals, to clean your home as if Christ himself was coming for dinner that night. It's possible to write user manuals. It's possible to grade papers as if Jesus himself were going to read them. It's possible to to teach students, to work with clients, to compose emails, to talk with colleagues as if you were serving Christ himself. It's even possible, as Jesus says in Matthew 25, that you could give food to the hungry and clothe the naked, water to the thirsty, as if you're serving Christ himself and not even know it possible to serve others with passion to please, with an eye to God's glory in all things as if serving Jesus himself. I wonder if you've ever heard that parable of the three bricklayers. Three bricklayers, and they're asked one day, what are you doing? 
The first says, I'm laying bricks. The second says, I'm building a church. The third says, I'm building the house of God. See, the first has a job. The second has a career. The third has a calling. The first has a job. It's just something that needs to get done. The second has a career. It's something that leads to personal success. The third has a calling. Something that leads to leads that individual to something far greater than himself. As a Christian, you are called to a much higher purpose than yourself. You're called to a much higher purpose than pleasing other people. You are bound to Jesus Christ himself. You belong to his household. You work for his household. Your passion lies not in pleasing yourself or pursuing your own personal success. It doesn't even lie in pleasing others. Your passion lies in pleasing Christ and pursuing him. And that mindset is yours when you realize your life is given over to the glory of God. That mindset gives birth to serving others as if you are serving Christ. Because your work and life is ultimately for building God's household. That's the mindset Christians are to have with sincerity and a passion to please. Then Paul follows that up here in verse 8. He also gives a motivation. The mindset and also the motivation here. And servants of Christ are motivated. I hope you notice this. They're motivated by an eternal reward. You know, slaves in the first century in Paul's day had very little motivation. What did they have to work for? They probably weren't going to earn their freedom. They lived under very harsh conditions. They were abused. They lived terrified of punishment. Their legal rights were stripped away when they became slaves. If they were married before they became a slave, they're um, stripped of their marriage when they became a slave. They lived under a totalitarian or authoritarian empire. What did they have to, to live for? What hope? Apostle Paul gives them hope here, motivation. But notice he doesn't, his motivation is not attempt to flee. Your life will be better if you flee your master. He doesn't say the solution to their problem is to overthrow their masters. Paul's motivation in verse 8 is simply this. Give service to the Lord and not man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. And Paul's saying here that all sincere, faithful, obedient service in the Lord will receive its due reward. And imagine for a slave, a reward? Really? Well, what reward is that, Paul? What exactly are you talking about here? It certainly isn't money. It's not what Paul has in mind. It definitely isn't a comfortable apartment. I mean, remember, Paul is calling himself a servant of Christ. And Paul's reward in his life was not earthly success. It was not a great earthly reputation. It was not comfort. It was not money. Paul's writing this in chains. So when he's speaking of reward and being rewarded something from the Lord, it's not going to be any of those earthly things. Well, Paul tells us what the reward is in Romans 6, verses 22 and 23. He says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, 
and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, that's the reward for those who are serving Christ, bound up in Christ, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, those are amazing words in Scripture. That God can promise sinners eternal reward with him. That sinners can be made right with God and have eternal life with him. That we can be liberated from slavery to sin and Satan. That we can be servants of Christ. We can be sinners assured of eternal rewards with God. We don't have to wonder about it. I mean, friends, I hope you can see the gospel working out here in the life of the Ephesian church right in front of us with these verses. Because the whole Bible is a story about how God has redeemed, bought back a people for himself, a people who rebelled against a good authority, a good master, people who enslaved themselves to a wicked master. The Christian faith is all about how God rescues people from the curse of sin, how God restores a right relationship with people who don't deserve it. God created us to be under his authority, right? We were made to serve We were made to serve him and obey him. And God promised us service, that our service would be rewarded. He promised eternal life in the garden with him if we obeyed. He promised us all the joys of fellowship with him. And yet, as you know, our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled in the garden. They they rebelled against God's authority. Adam and Eve resisted, and they tried to set up their own rival household, as it were. And that's what sin is. Sin is an act of rebellion when we try to overthrow God and his rule in our lives and try to replace him. And because of sin, God has cast us out of his household. As a result of sinful rebellion, we are born rebellious sinners. We are born serving flesh and the devil and not God. And we personally sin in rebellion to God every single day. Sin promised freedom, it promised life, but what it actually did was bind us to the harshest, most demeaning, fiercest, most abusing master, the devil. And friends, God is not going to let that rebellion go on forever. As a just master, a true master, God must punish sin. And as a just judge, God will punish sinners now and in eternity. But the Bible tells us that God, because of his love for the world, sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to this world. Jesus, who fully obeyed God, his Father, fully submitted to him. He was like us in every way, but without sin. He lived the perfect life of service that we failed to live. In fact, Jesus himself said, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And so, and In the act of that service, Jesus died for our sins on the cross, bearing the punishment we deserve. And he rose again on the third day, demonstrating his power over sin and power over death. But friends, you need to know, just as God raised Jesus from the the dead to new life, so now God is making all things new. And here is God's gospel promise, that new life echoing in these verses from Ephesians 6. That in the end, God promises to redeem his people from death and reward his people, to give a life free from sin, free from slavery to sorrow and 
and, and enslavement to pain of, from sin. A life finally with him as he intended it to be in the beginning. A life in the new heavens and the new earth in intimate fellowship with him. And friends, you know that the only way that that's good news, that news is only good for those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone. As God says in his word in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, all who truly repent or turn from their sins and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins will be redeemed. Friends, you can be emancipated from sin and welcome back into God's household today through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's good news. And so if you are a Christian, you know that good news, maybe for some of you that's old hat, but what shouldn't be old hat is waking up every day in gratitude for being welcomed back into the household of God. You wake up every day saying, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. You remember who you're actually doing your job for them. You remember whose authority you're ultimately under. And Jesus says, I really don't care, in a sense, what earthly job you work at. You are my treasured child. And your ultimate job is to be the best possible servant that you can be day after day, year after year. As Jesus says to you, I know your passion is to serve me and not to care about what other people think. That passion is just something, it's not just something you think about from time to time. You care more about the same ultimate goal of serving God in an abiding way, in a loyal way, in a steady way. So you go to sleep meditating on it. You wake up every day praying about it, your orders to serve him. You're conscious of it. You do this day in and day out with integrity and loyalty and you do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says, eternal life with me is your motivation. Whatever you do, Paul says in Colossians 3, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving Christ the Lord. So as Christians, we need to remember that. that we obey authority with that mindset, and with that motivation. Then Paul goes on here. Speak to masters as well. Verse 9. It's interesting. Paul speaks four verses to bondservants and only one verse to masters, but it's a powerful and stunning verse. Paul says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. And friends, as you look at that verse, you can also compare it with what came right before, because Paul's, in a sense, speaking to masters the same way he did with fathers and husbands. He's saying, don't do this, do this. And then he gives a motivation. So Paul is also giving a mindset to masters here going to give them a mindset, and he's also given them a motivation. Now, if you're hearing these words as a first century slave master, you own slaves, you're operating within this Greco-Roman system of slavery, these words from Paul would have hit you in the gut. 
Because in Paul's day, Romans master, Roman masters had slaves over, had authority over all the slaves, everybody in their household, as I said. They could use these people any way they wanted. It was expected oftentimes that they would do so. Just to use people in their home like their toys or possessions, not as people. And so it's incredibly striking here when Paul says to masters, do the same to the servants that I've just commanded them to do. Sincere at heart, aiming to please God, not other men, not even yourselves. And Christian masters are to use authority in a completely different way than the culture around them, Paul says. I find that quite surprising. Whether whatever authority you have in your lives, throughout your lives, whether you're a Christian husband, a Christian father, a boss, whatever it is, whatever authority you're given, it matters. It matters deeply to God then how you use that authority. So would you notice then how Paul instructs people, masters, how they're to use authority? First he says, do this. Do this. Treat slaves in the same way, as I, as I pointed out. Paul's not saying here, Paul's not saying here, masters, obey your servants, obey your slaves, just as they obey you. Uh, that's not what he's saying. The authority of masters is upheld, but masters are to use that authority in a godly way. So just like slaves and bond servants are to be sincere, same thing with masters. They're to speak with sincerity, speak truthfully. They're not to deceive their servants, not to deceive whoever is serving in their homes. And understandably, they're not, able, they're not supposed to abuse them then in any way, physically, mentally. They're not to be overbearing. They're to act justly, show respect. Why? Because these are not possessions. These are people made in the image of God. That's striking here. Paul does not call for the end of slavery here, just an outright end of slave, this wicked slave system. But the ethic that he gives to the Christian church, if this is really carried out, would completely upend the system of slavery in the Roman Empire. It bucked the system. Masters actually treating their slaves like human beings and treating them how they wanted to be treated. Do that, Paul says. But then notice here also he says, don't do this. No threatening. Masters, stop threatening. I wonder why he says that. Well, you can think, you can imagine that with anywhere between 20 to 50% of a population being made up of slaves, just how fearful many masters would be that those slaves would figure out one day, you know what, our lives are not so great. Maybe if we sort of bonded together among slaves, we could overthrow these masters, right? So masters, in order to keep this system in place, would threaten slaves. They would punish slaves unjustly, arbitrarily even, to keep the slaves in their place. Slaves lived in fear because of this system of punishment and threatening. And Paul's saying, that's not how Christian masters should live, though. They should not be living in fear of man, even fear of slaves. They should be living in fear of God, as we'll see in just a moment. The way to win over people, the way to even rule well over people, is not through domineering, it's not through abuse, it's not through threatening. Paul says the way to rule well, and even the way to serve well, is through respect and honesty and integrity. You do that, Paul's saying. 
you will win people over. You will have a well-functioning household. Between Christian bondservants and masters, in that system, there's no abuse. There's no allowance for abuse either way. There's no allowance for disrespect either way. And over time, actually what we've seen historically, many scholars believe this is actually how the Roman system of slavery came to an end. As the gospel spread, there are more and more households who came to faith and put into practice teachings like this in the New Testament. This abusive system of slavery in the Roman Empire just largely died out. Why? Because this is the power of the gospel when it's implemented into the homes. Those who are bound to Christ, serving others as if they were serving Christ himself. Now, friends, I hope you can see here that as Paul not only elevates the status of slaves here, he's also elevating the bar for their masters and how they're to use their authority. Masters are obligated to serve with this different mindset. It makes sense that Christians who have bowed the knee before Christ their master, they have submitted to his reign, they've received compassion and mercy from him. How could they not turn around then and show that same compassion and mercy to other people that they've known in Christ? They've known too much grace and mercy in Christ to do otherwise. That's the the mindset Paul calls on masters to have. But then notice the motivation that he gives here. So would you look again at the end of verse 9 here? Paul gives the motivation for masters. He says, masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening. And here's the motivation. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Friends, as you read those words, remember that Roman masters hold the power of life and death over the servants, the bond servants in their homes. They're judge, jury, and executioner, right? And so masters could get away with murder and nobody would stop them. They could make arbitrary decisions based on whoever they liked. But Paul reminds masters here that God not masters, human authorities, is the ultimate judge. And he shows no partiality. Partiality is a legal term used in court. Judges show no partiality, at least they're not supposed to. That's why you sometimes see these statues right, holding up scales of somebody blindfolded. They're supposed to be blind to partiality. Well, God, as a just judge, shows no partiality. In a sense, God doesn't really care how much money you make. God doesn't care how much power you have. God doesn't care what kind of reputation you have in a society or how many people live in your home. He does not show favoritism. And he doesn't look the other way when it comes to sin. It doesn't matter what you have or who you are. Apart from Christ, God does not show favorites when it comes to executing his justice. So Paul's reminding masters here that God will come to judge you on the day of accounting. You might have power and authority over your household now, but God is the ultimate authority. One day he's going to come again, and he is going to judge how you use that authority. If you're bound to Christ, you will lead and treat those under you with the compassion, the care, the honesty, the mercy, 
the impartiality that your master in heaven shows you. Friends, as we think about that, good use of authority in our lives. Now, Paul's talking to masters and slaves here. We don't live exactly within that same context, but we can apply it to other areas of our lives. I think this is a good lesson for us, especially when it comes to thinking about authority in the church. Now, pastors are not masters like Paul's talking about, like I said, but pastors and elders are in positions of authority in the church. Pastors are stewards in God's household of faith. Pastors are charged with growing God's household of faith. So I want to remind you that your pastor, whether it's here in this church or wherever you go in the world, wherever you're a member, your pastor is called to use his authority with a godly mindset. Paul's laid out here. Not threatening, not abusing, not disrespecting. So I pray that the pastor here, elders here, whoever that is, whether that's myself or another, I pray that we would exemplify what it looks like to lead well, to model what it looks like to joyfully submit to Christ's authority, to use our authority well. And so I want to ask you then to pray for your pastor. Now I want to ask you to pray for me. I need your prayers to use authority wisely. Pray that God's word and not pastor's own opinions would be the constitution for how the church is run. Pray that God would make me humble as your pastor, that I'd lead well. And pray that God would give us godly elders to come alongside me to help rule the church well, to lead the church well. Pray as Peter instructed elders in 1 Peter 5 that I and future elders would shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, right? not pleasing yourselves, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Church, because you're bound to Christ, serve others as if you're serving Christ. That's true just as much for pastors as it is for anybody else in the church. Friends, as we get close to closing up this letter, studying through the book of Ephesians, I hope you remember and think about all the images that Paul has given for the church, describing the metaphors and illustrations of what is the church. Paul has described the church as a body of believers, right? This image of a body with Christ as the head, and you are all members of that body. Paul's also described the church as a temple and a holy dwelling of God. And God fills the church, fills the temple with his own presence. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of that temple. And Paul also uses the image, as we'll see next week, of a commonwealth. And he's going to be talking about the spiritual battle that we fight as Christians. What Paul's especially reminding us of here, though, in these verses and the ones right before it talking about husbands and wives and children and parents is reminding us that the church is also a household. It's the household of God with Jesus Christ as the master of the house. Friends, with that image in mind, I hope you can see just how important it is then that we as a church clearly, clearly identify and differentiate who belongs 
to God's household and who doesn't. The Bible makes that clear, that there is a distinction. Those who belong to God's household and those who are outside of it. There's only two kinds of people in the world. We need to see how one enters the household of God. And so it's vital to clarify the gospel. It's vital to clarify who is a Christian. Because we don't want anyone to come here to our church and just assume that they're in God's household when they're really not. We don't want anyone to come here and worship with us and assume they're a Christian, but then meet God on that day of accounting and say, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And the Lord Jesus to turn to them and say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, we serve each other well. We serve each other well, and we serve people who have come here well. We serve our neighbors well when we are clear about what makes a person a Christian and who belongs to the household of God. We serve people well when we clarify that just being a better person is not what makes a person a Christian. Or attending church doesn't simply make a person a Christian. Or being baptized doesn't simply make a person a Christian. Or reading a prayer on the back of a tract doesn't make a person a Christian. Friends, all those things could be good things. All those things could even be fruit of conversion but they're not what makes a person a Christian. Entrance into God's household, entrance into his kingdom, entrance into his church comes by one way only, and that is by repenting of sin, by trusting in Christ alone for salvation and showing evidence of that in your life. Someone who has truly repented of sin and submitted to Christ's authority that is the person who can call themselves a Christian and a member of God's household. I hope that's helpful for you in our church, but also in your evangelism with family and friends. Do your non-Christian friends ever ask you, what does it take to be saved? Tell them. You must go to Christ in faith. You must seek forgiveness in him. He welcomes sinners to, who repent and trust in him alone. Does anyone desire this church? If we have people come and they ask you, how can I join this church? Well, there's the practical things. Take a membership class, talk with a pastor, sure, see our statement of faith. But you really want to know, what does it come down to? Entrance into the visible church requires a belief in this gospel, evidence of repentance and sin and faith in Christ alone, a passion to serve him alone. Friends, if you are bound to Jesus Christ, the master, if you've done that, you belong to a wonderful master. You're his. You delight to serve him. He's a gracious master. He'll never fail you. He'll never abuse you. He'll never disown you. Because he's bought you with his own blood. He shed, you, he shed his own blood for you. How will he not also graciously give you all things? He's also sent his helper, his Holy Spirit, to you to empower you to live a life of service for him. The same spirit that bonds you to Christ is the same spirit that enables you to serve like Christ. The way, the only way that we can serve as bond servants to Christ is by looking to him in faith 
every single day and by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to empower us for service. Therefore, friends, as Christians, you and I are not ashamed, but joyful, like the Apostle Paul and the other apostles, to call ourselves bondservants, slaves of Jesus Christ, serving wholeheartedly as if we were serving the Lord Jesus himself. Amen. Let's pray now and ask God's help to do that.